ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is one of the most controversial cases to come before the International Court of Justice. South Africa accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. Hello, this is the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with you on RN and ABC Listen. Now, Israel has strongly rejected the claim of genocide. It calls it a blood libel. In its argument, South Africa is pointing to a rather violent story in the Bible where God commands the Israelites to wipe out the people of Amalek. Now, this is a story that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has told since the Hamas attack that killed 1,200 Israelis. So why is this ancient story so powerful in modern Israel and why is it a key part of a court case? Professor Atalia Omer specialises in Jewish and Israeli history and politics at Notre Dame University in the US. The pivot of the story is really happening in uh, the book of Samuel, Samuel 1, chapter 15, where King Saul is instructed by God to completely annihilate all of the Amalekites, including children, babies, animals, men, women, everyone. And this is in revenge for an earlier story that happens immediately after the escape from Egypt, after the crossing of the Red Sea, where the Amalek, the people of Amalek, attacks, basically ambushed the Israelites and attacks the most vulnerable people of the Israelites. There are all kind of twists and turns, including Moses instructing Joshua to fight Amalek as a result of this attack. And right before the Israelites, 40 years later, are supposed to cross into the promised land, they are reminded by God to remember the Amalek and what the Amalek had done to them. So going back to King Saul and the instruction that he got, he implemented it almost completely. However, he spared some of the best animals and also Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, this story, Atalia, it's told every year before the holiday of Purim, isn't it? So it's very well known in Israel. So when Benjamin Netanyahu speaks of this story, what's he saying to the people of Israel? Let's go to first to why the Amalekite story is told right before Purim is because five centuries after King Saul's attack and destruction of the Amalek, with the exception of the king, we have the character of Haman, who who operated during the um, kingdom of Persia, and we have the exiled Jews in that kingdom, and Haman is plotting to destroy the Jewish people. And then, of course, we have Queen Esther and her uncle were subverting this plan, And we know that Haman is a descendant of Amalek, uh, according to the story told in the book of Esther. So kind of a literal reading of the story of Amalek that happens in the the week prior to the marking of the holiday of Purim, which uh, commemorates the story of Esther, is that because King Saul failed to completely destroy Amalek, then we have the story of the almost destruction of the Jewish people Mm. during the time of Haman. So it's kind of like that's the lesson that you really need to be 
on the lookout, and it really is integrated into Netanyahu's rhetoric about life by the sword and so forth. In what context has uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu been telling this story? The deployment of Amalek to refer to Palestinians is not something that Netanyahu is the first of uh, practicing in the context of Israel. We have a long history of uh, leaders, including rabbinic leaders within the religious Zionist settler movements. It used to be a more the extremist fringe. But over the years, and we can talk about it later, perhaps it moves more to the mainstream. So you have rabbis already in the 80s deploying the concept of Amalek, this archetype, biblical archetype of evil and the enemy of Israel, the enemy of the Jews to describe Palestinians. And there is the very, very concrete and horrific story of the American-born medical doctor Baruch Goldstein, who on the holiday of Purim got up in the city of Hebron in the West Bank and went to the cave of the patriarchs or what the Muslim Palestinians called the Ibrahimi Mosque and massacred 29 worshippers. And it's very likely, since Baruch Goldstein was a very religious Jew, that the week prior he heard the story of Amalek in synagogue and studied it. And then the way it was studied until that you need to get up and destroy Amalek, which Baruch Goldstein interpreted to mean Palestinians. So why has the South African government, in its case before this international court, referred to the story of Amalek as part of its case against Israel? The key point is really that it is a part of the case to establish what is usually the hardest part in proving genocide is to establish intent. We have those declarations and references to Amalek that Netanyahu is making, but it's also very ubiquitous within kind of the broader Israeli discourse. And then the South African case involved also evidence from soldiers on the ground in Gaza. You hear them use this concept of Amalek and we are going to destroy and annihilate Amalek in very, very, very strong words. You have other politicians talk about precision is not the point. Destruction is the point. There are no innocent people in Gaza. This reference to Amalek is just one reference within a whole spectrum. Is it possible, though, Atalia, that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been using the story of Amalek specific to Hamas and not to the Palestinians of Gaza? I mean, is it, is it possible that it's a very focused historical reference? He has a long kind of history of deploying the concept, for instance, this archetype of Amalek to talk about Iran, for instance. So it's not the first time that he is deploying the concept. He deploys the concept of clash of civilizations and the 9-11 type of discourse. Mm. Is there an irony here, though, in that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is using this biblical story But he is not at all religious, is he? Outside of a few very limited uh, occasions, you never see him, for example, uh, wearing a yarmulke. He's not a religious politician, though, is he? No, and this is actually where it's very important to first understand how a literal reading of the story of Amalek is, in fact, very much in departure from the traditional rabbinic mode of interpreting those very hard 
versus to grapple with over the centuries. Is it more a case that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, like, by the way, uh, certain politicians in the United States who are not religious at all, but they give their nationalist policies a religious tinge to maybe give them greater currency with a particular audience. The policies themselves aren't at their core religious. They just have a religious patina to them. This is a really important point. So there are two issues here. One issue is that Netanyahu is very weak right now. His coalition prior to October 7th depends on this messianic settler bloc and also kind of a neo-fascist contingent. This is represented by Itamar Ben-Gvir. As we, we mentioned earlier, the settler movements deployed the concept of Amalek for a long time. So there is one way of understanding Netanyahu using Amalek as kind of a dog whistle to this constituency. But even deeper than that, secular Zionism emerged as a European movement that had to rely on kind of the biblical claims to the land. Even within the secular discourse of early Zionists, every time they purchased the land, that's before 1948, every time they purchased the land, they referred to this land as redeemed or Judaized. And the Bible, especially the book of Joshua, and not the oral tradition, not the layers and layers of interpretations, because they were deemed diasporic, have been central to the consolidation of the Israeli ethos and Israeli identity. Amalek used to be such a fringe discourse. Uh, How much is Israeli politics generally leaning into religion today? Over the years, there have been shifts to the right and a more kind of pronounced exclusionary religious discourse. Uh, It partly can be explained as a result of the fundamental moment of the quote-unquote disengagement from Gaza that in the context of the settler movement is remembered as a very um, traumatic event. And as a result of that, this unilateral disengagement from the settlements in Gaza, you see a consolidation of power within the settler movements and you see all kind of convergences of different currents. So we have, on the one hand, we have the settler movements that has centered kind of a land theology and prioritized settlement of the land above all things and tolerated kind of the secularity of the state and the public discourse and the public sphere. And on the other hand, you have another current that is important from the United States by way of Rabbi Mayor Kahana and is manifesting today in um, Itamar Ben-Gvir and kind of neo-Kahanism that is just very exclusionary and really centers a language of revenge and power and domination. Israel specialist Atalia Omer of Notre Dame University. And this is the Religion and Ethics Report. Now, on the site of a mosque destroyed three decades ago, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has officially opened this huge temple dedicated to the Hindu god Lord Ram. But how has one plot of land in such a vast country become so important to the political dominance of Modi's Hindu nationalist party, the BJP? Dr Priya Chako is from the University of Adelaide. So there's been a popular story that the birthplace of the god Ram was a temple that was demolished by the Mughal ruler Babur, who built a mosque on top of it. The VHP, which is an affiliate of the BJP, began a campaign a few decades ago to get access to that mosque and to build a a temple on that site. What's happened with the building of the Ram Temple, it's the culmination of a 30-year campaign to build a temple 
to Ram to reclaim the site as the birth of the god Ram. And the BJP has uh, got involved in that campaign quite heavily in the 1980s. It's used it to instigate communal violence, to instigate a political divide between Hindus and Muslims, and that's helped to pave its pathway to political power. Is it possible to even argue, Priya, that the BJP would not be as strong and indeed as dominant as it is today without this temple site in Ayodhya? I think this issue has been really important, particularly in 1992, its instigation of this campaign and the violence that was perpetrated by members of the VHP led to violence in North India in 92 because VHP activists actually ended up tearing down the Bosque. That led to a spate of violence across North India, which resulted in the deaths of about 2,000 mostly Muslims. And it led to a new sort of Hinduism emerging. It is a very diverse country with many different ways of practicing Hinduism. And Ram has been interpreted in many different ways. Traditionally, he's been represented as quite a mild-mannered figure, but the VHP and the Hindu nationalist movement transformed him into this angry Hindu, this warrior king who once ruled over a vast, happy kingdom after defeating his internal and external enemies. So the BJP has helped to generate this vision, and that's really helped to sustain their political campaigns. So I think it's been very central to the rise of the BJP. Yeah, you talk about how the god Ram has been transformed into a warrior figure, frankly, um, based on some of the campaign posters or some of the the posters advertising this massive reopening. He seems to have been transformed into a running mate for Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister. What are these posters that have been appearing? Yeah, indeed. Modi claims that he's been chosen by God uh, to represent the Indian people in restoring, you know, Ram's rightful place in Ayodhya. So through Ram, Modi claims to be bringing about a new Ram Rajya, Ram's kingdom in India. So he's an important running mate in that way because Modi is promising to restore the glory of Ram's rule. Unlike Donald Trump in the United States, I don't doubt that Modi is a pious man, but he's not a priest. How did he come to be the central figure in the opening of this new temple in Ayodhya? Modi is a showman and he he uses religion to demonstrate his piousness, his sacrifice for the nation. He invokes religion a lot in his speeches. And it's really about this idea, this actually a sort of a secular idea of development and, and nationalism. So he's used religion in a very political way. This is really about political religion, not religion as spirituality that he's promoting. Even though he adopts these things like fasting and, and all of that, you have to see it in terms of the political context in which he's operating. You know, when he goes and fasts, he's got multiple cameras uh, following him around. He has 
photo shoots in which, you know, he's posing as the protector of Ram. So it's very much a political religion. Hmm. He did, him. yeah, he did fast for 11 days leading up to his opening of this temple. And uh, yes, he had the world's media trained on him as he literally prostrated himself face down before the god in the temple site. He said something like the opening of this temple represents the start of a new era for India. What did he mean by that? He's been using this term Amrith Kal, which is like the age of nectar, and it's a reference to mythical texts in which, you know, history is cyclical and we've been in this dark age, but now we're emerging from that into this age of prosperity and wealth. So the claim in the election campaign will be that Modi needs to be elected for another five years because we're on the cusp of this new age of prosperity that he's bringing with his policies and with his restoration of Ram to his rightful place. I did see that, and this figure really staggered me, this temple, the new temple in Ayodhya, is expected to receive 150,000 visitors a day, a day. They've built a new high-speed rail line to reach the, the temple. Do they see this temple as a kind of rival to perhaps India's most famous building, the Taj Mahal? Yeah, definitely. The phrase that's been used is this is India's Vatican city, but it's also a part of a big tourist trail that they're planning. So they're planning to refurbish lots of temples all over India and these trains are going to take people around the country. So this is very much about tourism and development as much as it is about religion and spirituality. Just on that point, finally, is there any resentment in India, by the way, at least among some of the the, the hardline Hindu nationalists, that India's most famous structure happens to be a Muslim shrine? Yeah, and there's been some claims that, you know, the Taj Mahal is built on (laughs) what used to be a temple. So there is uh, resentment about that. And this building of this Ram temple, I guess, is meant to be an alternative to the idea that India is associated with the Taj Mahal, which is a a Muslim, a mogul structure. Dr Priya Chako of the University of Adelaide, and you're with me, Andrew West. Pope Francis seemed to have something for everyone over the summer. He gave liberals in the church the ability to bless same-sex civil unions. Then he comforted conservatives with a strong condemnation of surrogacy. So just how adept has the Pope become at balancing the interests of left and right in the church? Ed Condon is editor of the online journal The Pillar. Uh, First of all, Ed, what's been the reaction over the past month to the announcement on same-sex blessings? The reaction has been pretty seismic and pretty seismically divided. Uh, You've had sections of the Catholic Church, most notably in Europe and parts of the United States and places, where the welcome has been pretty loud and pretty vociferous in saying this is over to you. And then you've had other areas of the Church, most notably in Africa, where it's not just national bishops' conferences, but the Pan-African Bishops' Conference have pretty much issued documents rejecting its initial provisions wholesale and saying, not in our backyard, effectively. And there have been a lot of um, places that have been falling somewhere in the middle with bishops saying, you know, this is a very interesting pastoral document. We need to see how this is going to be implemented. 
But of course, then you've had the Vatican itself weighing in repeatedly on this document, which when they published it, they said, listen, this is our last word on the matter. We're not going to explain any further. We're not going to give examples. We're not, you know, we're not going to get into the business of trying to tell you exactly how to interpret and apply this. You know, this is out for the particular churches in the diocese to work with. And, and they wrote back on that pretty quickly. I saw LifeSite News, which is a flagship of the conservative wing of the Catholic Church, saying the Pope's decision, quote, contradicted the unchangeable Catholic teaching that the church cannot bless sinful relationships. Can we take a rather legalistic view of this uh, and say that the relationships are only sinful in the Catholic Church's eyes if they're sexual and a priest might simply not inquire when he's giving a blessing as to the true nature of that relationship. So is this a sort of a legalistic document in that sense? I don't know that I'd call it a legalistic document. It purports to be a declaration on teaching, on doctrine, not on canonical legal question. But I think saying that it contradicts the perennial teaching of the church on the nature of of sinful sexual relationships is a mischaracterization of the original declaration. I mean, the thing itself said in its own text, quite plainly, it wasn't claiming to or setting out to change the church's teaching on human sexuality or to set up a contrary witness to the church's stand. And even previous answers by the same department to say the church cannot bless sin and specifically cannot bless relationships that it holds to be intrinsically sinful. It said all of that in the text of the document itself. Now, of course, what people have reacted very strongly to is to say, well, it appears to authorize something which gives very much the impression that that's what you're doing, even if you say on paper you're not. That's where a great deal of the controversy has been over this. Mm. The document says it's not authorizing the blessing of same-sex unions or relationships per se, but offering a pastoral scope for priests to bless Catholics, individuals who are in such relationships and unions, and there have been arguments that say this is effectively distinction without difference. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, although given some of the ways this was immediately applied in the full glare of sort of newspaper cameras and reporters and things, when this was published, there had to be the suspicion it would be misapplied and misrepresented, and and indeed it has. What are some of the pretty severe strictures on uh, these blessings that the Pope has permitted in this very qualified way? These are non-liturgical blessings, they've made very clear from the beginning. That is to say, they aren't part of a, a religious ceremony or practice, that these are supposed to be spontaneous, informal, pastoral in nature. They've come out now and said, well, you, these shouldn't take place in prominent sacred spaces, effectively. You shouldn't have people standing up at the front of a church or in the middle of an assembly. And when they say spontaneous, they mean exactly that. This isn't something that should be sought and you know, sort of prearranged or have any of the sort of trappings or details or anything else that might give it the impression of being a sort of marriage ceremony or something like that. This is meant to be private pastoral gesture of blessing and support for individuals. But I mean, this is kind of the problem with this document's reception is, and also how the document originally presented itself, is it reads very much like the Vatican was trying to eat his cake and have it too here. Um, it says, well, we're not doing anything novel, but this is definitely a novelty. We're not changing anything, but look at this new thing we're presenting. And I find it very difficult, having read it closely several times now, to identify what exactly is supposed to be new about this. Because the kind of blessings that it outlines, the idea that a priest can offer a spontaneous 
blessing, which isn't, you know, a sanctification blessing necessarily. Say, look at this good thing here. You know, we give it the sort of church's seal of approval, but a blessing of intercession, or as the Cardinal Fernandez, the principal signatory of this declaration, has, has subsequently said, even a blessing that says, please help this person to convert and fully conform their life and relationships to the church's teaching. Mm. Priests have been doing this for Catholics in situations like this for decades, certainly for the whole of my lifetime. It struck me, Ed, reading an account of the first of these such blessings, and this was a blessing by Father James Martin, who's perhaps been the leading advocate for more inclusion of of LGBT people in American Catholicism. His first blessing simply said, may the Lord bless and keep you, may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, and may the Lord turn his countenance to you and give you joy and peace. That, to me, sounds like the sort of blessing uh, that uh, a priest may give anyone. Well, indeed. Father Martin's sort of first usage of the Declaration's description of a blessing is, I think, very interesting in that the actual wording of what he said would seem to me to be right in line with the sort of thing that the Vatican had in mind with this declaration. But, of course, almost everything else he did in that (laughs) blessing would contradict what the Vatican said you should or shouldn't do, inasmuch as you can't possibly claim it was a spontaneous moment when, first of all, there were no less than three reporters from the New York Times writing the thing up, as well as having um, a newspaper photographer in attendance. And we have the two people who received this blessing say on the record to the newspaper, as I recall, saying, oh, no, Father Martin called us up and said, would you like to receive this blessing? Far from being spontaneous, um, Father Martin seems to have gone out sort of touted for trade. Well, let's turn to another issue and a statement where the Pope was absolutely unambiguous. No one was left wondering. And that was his recent statement on surrogacy, something that we've interrogated on this program, the ethics of it and the challenges of it for many years now. What did he say in his recent speech to Vatican diplomats about surrogacy? Pope Francis said, as he has before, that surrogacy is a moral atrocity. I think it would be a fair characterization of the Pope's position to say he considers it a form of almost human trafficking. It's abhorrent at a moral and even sort of scientific anthropological level. Yeah, I mean, the language that he used was this is a despicable practice, a grave violation of the dignity of the woman and the child. As you say, he has spoken against surrogacy in the past. Uh, He said that children deserve a natural mother and father, for example. But why such strong language now? Francis can be strikingly blunt and use at times very strikingly strong language on moral issues like this. Often they just get overlooked and they seem to fall, I think, between two stools of of coverage of the papacy very often, which is either the Pope says something that sounds too Catholic, in which case it doesn't get as much attention as it might otherwise, or it doesn't conform to a popular conception of Pope Francis as being a sort of great liberalizer and, you know, a departure point from, quote-unquote, traditional church teaching. So if the Pope says you can offer the same kind of blessings for same-sex couples that priests have always been able to offer, it gets global attention. But if the Pope says surrogacy is a moral atrocity and an abuse of women, it can often slip through the cracks and only gets noticed part of the time. I'm not suggesting the Pope doesn't actually believe what he said about surrogacy, but I do wonder 
though, about the timing, Ed. Is it possible that coming so soon after his potentially divisive decision on same-sex blessings, he was using this surrogacy statement to say to church conservatives, look, don't worry when it comes to those big questions of bioethics and life and procreation. Look, I'm as solid as a rock. Don't worry about me. I don't know that I would necessarily bind that entirely. I mean, Cardinal Fernandez, um, Pope Francis's sort of doctrinal chief, said something similar as well over Christmas in the middle of all the furore. And the other reason I'd be cautious of reading too much into the timing of these things is when the declaration on same-sex persons and, and blessings and things came out, it came out on a, a Monday, and the Monday was immediately following the results of a Vatican financial trial in which a cardinal was sentenced to six years in prison for corruption, along with 10 other people who had been charged alongside him with you know, a massive amount of fraud and corruption in the Vatican City, amounting to hundreds of millions of euros in losses. When the document on blessings came out, quite a lot of people said, this is in fact a distraction tactic from the financial mess the Vatican is in. Mm. You can get into a sort of Russian doll mentality where every announcement is meant to be a distraction from the previous one. Well, we're journalists, said we, we, we need to see wheels within wheels. Thanks for joining us again on the Religion and Ethics Report. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. And Ed Condon is with The Pillar. And that is the show. You can find us at ABC Listen, where I'd love you to follow us. A big thanks this week to Hong Jang and Roy Huberman. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.